uh, what one of the uh, um, feedbacks that that I get often from one of you, and I appreciate it very much in terms of feedback from the sermon, is uh, I'm told, the Lord did good. You were so-so. Well, I hope this morning that even with me being far less than so-so, uh, having gotten, getting over a sinus infection here and <clears throat> getting my voice back, that the Lord will still do good here through his word. And I stand on the promise that his word will not return void. You know, biographies are books that are written about certain people. Autobiographies, obviously, are written about them, and it's written by the person. Memoirs can be one or the other. My dad has actually written his memoirs, and, and I've read Portions of it. I, I, I'm a bad son. I need to finish the whole thing. Sorry. Um, and I've teased him that the the early years of his memoirs really should be titled "To All the Girls I've Loved Before." It's it's kind of strange. How, think about how many works have been written about, say, Billy Graham. I mean, I I looked on the Wikipedia page for Billy Graham and. It referenced titles of articles or books that just had his name in the title. That's how I kind of summarize this. 141 articles and books. I haven't had a single article or book written about me. I don't want one to be, but, but I, I, I mean, it's probably uncountable, all of the the things that have been written about Billy Graham, and, and this, this message isn't about Billy Graham and such, but you wouldn't expect each of those books to cover every event, every conversation, every, every uh, situation that Billy Graham experienced in his life. Uh, just looking at some of the books written about him, you know that they focus on different things. We wouldn't expect for his general biographies to cover every aspect of his life. Biographies like uh, more of the fuller story of his life and career, Prophet with Honor, the Billy Graham story, or Billy Graham, his life and influence. And we wouldn't even we wouldn't expect even a more focused attention from books that are more about his skills and his impact. For instance, the book America's Pastor, Billy Graham and the Shaping of a Nation, or The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham, or Billy Graham, The Greatest Evangelist. These, these focused on aspects of, of the impact that he made. We wouldn't expect them to talk about his nightmares, for instance. We certainly wouldn't expect every aspect of his life to be covered in books that have a more narrow aspect of his life. Billy Graham, Candid Conversations with a Public Man is one of those. Or Saturdays with Billy, My Friendship with Billy Graham. Or The Legacy of a Couple, Ruth and Billy Graham. Those books would focus, you would expect, on a very narrow part of the personal experience of Billy Graham. So I share this with you because the Gospels are 
similar in the sense that they each are focusing on a thematic difference from one another of Jesus' life. When it comes to the inspired biographies of Jesus' life, which is what the four Gospels are, we have the same principles. We don't have recorded everything that Jesus did and said. And also, each Gospel has a unique purpose and, and a unique audience that it's focusing on that it's ministering to. And these parameters guide what events are shared about. So if you were to um, look at Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, specifically, you know, what we covered last week was Jesus' temptation, the, the, uh, really the, um, the beginning test for Jesus to be registered, if you will. For Jesus to pass the bar as the Messiah and to begin his ministry is what his temptations were. Well, the next verse, verse 12 that we're going to get into today, it bypasses what is really almost a whole year of Jesus' out-of-the-way ministry. It bypasses Jesus coming down from the wilderness and seeing John the Baptist again, and what you would see in John 1, of John pointing to him and saying, Behold, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And some of John's disciples then following Jesus, and and some of them becoming some of his 12 disciples. It bypasses the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine. It bypasses Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. No, Matthew was not over on the side, writing down what happened in the conversation. Matthew wasn't even following Jesus at that time. Sorry for the chosen fans. I, I appreciate the chosen too, but um, sorry, only a few of you got that. But um, also, it bypasses the Samaritan woman and Jesus' whole ministry in Samaria. So why does Matthew bypass this whole year of ministry between chapter 4, verse 11, and chapter 4, verse 12. It's because Matthew has a singular focus that he is seeking to reach, a singular audience that he is seeking to approach. What I really think we're getting from our passage this morning as it introduces Jesus' public ministry is a taste of God's kingdom. A taste of God's kingdom. It's been understood, like I said, that the first year of Jesus' ministry was in obscurity, more of private meetings, private conversations, maybe at the most ministry to a town. And Matthew is giving the account of Jesus' public ministry that begins with him making the move from Nazareth as his kind of base of operations to Capernaum. A a city by the Sea of Galilee that we will talk about. Also, Matthew's account picks up with Jesus starting to proclaim his kingdom to the world. We really see in these verses, in many ways, a summary of what Jesus is teaching and doing for the next 12 chapters of Matthew. But Matthew also, in a sense, he's writing almost like a systematic theology of Jesus' teaching of the kingdom. 
He, he groups parables together. He groups teachings about the kingdom of God is like. You'll, we will be in a section of Matthew where it seems like uh, forever we're just dealing with one teaching after another of Jesus saying the, te- the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a man that planted a vineyard. Because Matthew is grouping Jesus' teachings about the kingdom into almost like a systematic theology of the kingdom of God. So we see this shift take place into Jesus' public ministry from verse 411 to 412. And we pick up here in 412 that we look at here this morning. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. We'll cover John's arrest later. For some reason, Matthew puts it chapters down the line. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So right now we're focusing on what's going on geographically, okay? We're going to have some maps for you map geeks, you know, along with me, right? But later this morning we'll look at the significance of these areas in terms of biblical history. So we have some two, two maps here of what is being talked about. And, and so the first map to the left, kind of the broader view of the area, you can see the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, or Naphtali, um, that, that are being named here. Okay, these are general regions. Uh, the the tr- land of Zebulun would have been the location of what's described here as the way by the sea, a major trade route because of the typography, just the um, huge hills and mountains of this area. The the best way to for the trade, which this is a major trade route in and out of the Sea of Galilee would have been down along the Mediterranean and then around where you see the word Zebulun, which is the, the tribe of Israel that would have made, had that land in biblical history. That trade route, the way by the sea, would have come from the Sea of Galilee over to the Mediterranean Sea. And, and so you also see Nephtali there as well. These, are, these tribes really represent the place of these areas in biblical history and the impact that they should have had. Israel had been given the responsibility not just to worship God, but also to represent his message to the nations that he is righteous, but he is also merciful, that he is a covenant God of steadfast love. These these, uh, positions of Nephtali and Zebulun would have embodied the responsibility that Israel had to reach the nations because of their location. Zebulun, because of its trade route. Naphtali, because of it being right on the border of Gentile nations. The other map there is kind of a blow-up of the area of Sea of Galilee, and it's just, it, it shows how Jesus is described as having moved from the backwater sticks of Nazareth to the metro area of Capernaum. 
this would be like, I apologize to uh, Alamo uh, residents, um, this would have been like moving from Alamo to, say, a town like Terre Haute. All right? Now, if you're living in Indianapolis, you would have been like, wow, big upgrade, right? And that's how Jeruse, folks in Jerusalem would have felt like. But in this area that was uh, really overrun by Gentiles and, and lived in by Jews that were kind of um, compromising in many ways with the Gentile neighbors and stuff like that, this would have been like moving up to the east side <clears throat> the, uh, in sense of the, the outreach. And his move was made in order to increase the reach and the message that he preached. Again, Matthew is stepping into the public ministry of Jesus as being described here. And his message is this. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You, you'll recall that this was John the Baptist's message as well. And it's not that, that Jesus wasn't original. We'll talk about what it means that he was proclaiming this message. But I think that it's important for us to understand as we see these verses as being really a summary of the next 12 chapters of Matthew. That we need to look at all of Jesus' teachings that we will see in light of this summary statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he goes and calls disciples to follow him, he is calling them as a part of repentance to follow them, to follow him. Their application of repentance was to follow him physically. So we, we, I hope to be able to look at all of his teachings from this point forward in light of this summary statement of what Jesus was making. And I think it shades those teachings a little bit differently for us. In verses 18 through 22, Jesus calls some fishermen to follow him. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Pastor Jeff is going to, follow, is going to um, cover these verses next week uh, with his message. And I expect that we're, we're going to see good insights into what it meant for people to follow the rabbi, Jesus, as his disciples. And I look forward to being challenged to look at our lives and examine if we are following Jesus ourselves as his disciples. So we, we look also this morning at verses 23 through 25, and they sort of summarize the impact of these next 12 chapters of the book of Matthew. Where it says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan.
So what do I think God wants us to take from the verses that we are looking at here this morning? I'm summarizing the points that I think that God wants us to take from this by trying to make this statement. Walk in the light of Christ by turning from sin to submit to Him and looking to Jesus as the solution for sin's ill effects. We are called to walk in the light of Christ. And specifically, we do so by turning from sin, by repenting, by turning from sin to submit to Him. And also, by looking to Jesus as the solution for sin's ill effects. And I believe that is a summary of what Matthew is telling us about Jesus' public ministry for these chapters through chapter 16. As you can see, the first challenge I want to make to you this morning is this. Walk in the light as Christ of Christ the King. Walk in the light of Christ the King. So, so Jesus moves into this area of Capernaum, <clears throat> this territory that is associated with Zebulun and Nephtali, uh, those tribes that, uh, main, that had that land in biblical history. And we read that this is done so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region of and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. As I mentioned, Zebulun and Naphtali, they, they represent this area because they were in the prime spot to carry out God's mission for Israel to reach the nations. They were on the border of the Gentile nations. They had major trade routes that went through them. Sadly, after centuries of warnings, God finally allowed them along with the other northern tribes to be overtaken by the Assyrians. And the Jews that lived there were killed or scattered or became very Gentile compared to those in Judah and in Jerusalem. All of Isaiah's warnings to them led up to this. And this is a large reason why Galileans were looked on with, by, in disdain by the other Jews in that tribe of Judah and in Judea where Jerusalem is found. This is why they were amazed that Jesus would go there to collect disciples. This place that had been judged the land which should have been Israel's forward operation base for the light of the gospel of God's mercy had become the place where they had become compromised, judged, and fallen into darkness. Isaiah was a major prophet that warned these northern tribes of God's coming judgment for their sin. And what's quoted here by Matthew as beginning to be fulfilled is Isaiah's prophecy of hope for them. And I have it there in your notes in that text box 
<clears throat> on the front page of the notes so that we can read it and you can notice what it's really about. Recall that when a Hebrew writer is writing to Hebrew readers, when he quotes an Old Testament passage, and sometimes it's kind of like paraphrased, the understanding is, is that the readers know the passage and they know the context around it. It's kind of like when you just, you know, um, Kelly and I were watching his show uh, and this one character kept saying, well, every cloud, you know, it was a British show, so I give it a British, you know, well, he was saying every cloud has a silver lining, but he just assumed that the person he was talking to knew the rest of it. And so in the same way, when a Hebrew writer would quote an Old Testament passage, the assumption is they know what that passage is about. So that's why I have a larger portion of Isaiah 9 there, and we'll read that. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former times he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Recall, this is Isaiah's prophecy of hope. For these nations that would be judged by the Assyri for these tribes that would be judged by the Assyrians. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So, what's he really talking about? Well, let's jump down to verse 5 that you have there. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now it's going to sound familiar. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, most of you guys are sitting there going, wait, why are we reading this? It's not Christmas. But that's because you recognize that this prophecy of Isaiah, this, this prophecy of hope, that this area that had been judged by God allowing the Assyrians to come in and conquer them and scatter them, that the Messiah was going to come. A child would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders and he would bring light to this land living in darkness. This prophecy of hope of the coming kingdom was also a well-known prophecy of the birth of Jesus. And Jesus moved into this region in order to spread his teaching to fulfill the promise of the light of the kingdom coming there once again. They would be able to be the kingdom of God again even though they had been conquered and scattered and dispersed and intermingled with Gentiles. How would he do it? He would make his church of Jew and Gentile together. 
One writer says, the Galilee which had failed to remain faithful to the Mosaic Covenant and as a result had been the first to go into exile was the first to see the dawn of the coming kingdom. And the very things which had made it vulnerable in the past now brought it blessing. That it would be, once again, the forward operating base of the kingdom of God. And it's no small thing that Matthew, the repentant tax collector, right? That Matthew was intent on showing how the unrighteous were the ones that had the opportunity to usher in the Messiah. Jesus and his message is the light of the kingdom of God It had dawned. It had risen on the land again. It is the light that dispels spiritual darkness and drives away the shadow of death. You probably heard about this report that came out from the CDC this past week. I heard about it on every podcast I listen to, every news report. I'm kind of a news junkie. Nearly three in five, 57% of U.S. teenage girls felt persistently sad or hopeless in 2021. This is double that of boys, and it represents a nearly 60% increase and the highest level reported over the last decade. Almost 60% of teenage girls felt feel persistently sad and hopeless. And many contemplate suicide. We live for this generation in a land of the shadow of death. Persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness among U.S. high schoolers, especially girls, have increased over the last 10 years is what these reports are saying. We live in a land that is dwelling in darkness. Sadly, the blame is being placed on traditional or biblical values that have stood for thousands of years. And the darkness is only being encouraged and growing all the more as young people are told, the problem is not in here. The problem is not in your heart. The problem is not with your desires. The problem is with the rules. The problem is with the expectations that society put on you. And the darkness is only getting darker and darker for them. The sadness that's experienced is being blamed on society for not being accepting enough. What's sad about this is knowing that there is no hope in the path that young people are being pointed down. But with the person of Jesus Christ, the world has seen a great light that cuts through the darkness. It brings me back to 2 Corinthians 4. The God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers so that they will not see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. But the God who said let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts so that we might see 
the glory of Christ. God is still cutting through the darkness. And our prayer must be that those who suffer despair, that on them the light of the gospel will dawn, and that we must have the gospel on our lips. And what we must do is walk in the light of Christ the King. And as followers of Christ, this means having hope, walking in hope because we walk in faith. doesn't mean shaking our heads and just worrying about how bad the world has gotten. As, far as, as followers of Christ, we look forward to an eternity with the Lord God as our light. Do you realize that? That with the full inception of Jesus' presence, he will be our light. You can read about this in Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5, where it says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. Why will night be no more? They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We can walk in hope today because we walk in faith that God's plan is headed to a future in which his light envelops everything. And taken from our passage that the way that we can walk in light, in light of Christ as king, is by turning from sin to submit to the king. Turn from sin to submit to the king. This is what is being proclaimed by Jesus. And as I mentioned, this is the summary of these next 12 chapters of the book of Matthew, this gospel of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This statement is the beginning, the summary of his public ministry. His message was return to God. Stop your rebellion and come back to obedience. He wasn't walking around saying, Oh, Galilee of the Gentiles, don't worry, God accepts you. You just need to accept yourself. No, he, was, he wasn't saying, oh, the problem is out there and the answer is in here. He was saying the problem is in here and the answer is me. That's pretty bold. Receiving the gospel cannot be divorced from repentance from sin that made the gospel necessary. But our sin also makes us eligible for salvation if we will admit it, if we will recognize it. And following Christ cannot be separated from a life of repenting from the sin that God exposes in us. The, the, um, the term here that he's actually saying is be repenting. Be repenting. In other words, begin a life of repenting and keep living in repentance. That is the tense of his command here. Be repenting 
Because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's not like the kingdom of God is passing through and repent while it's here and then when it's gone, don't worry about it. He's saying, understand that you live within the kingdom of God. And as you live within the kingdom of God, if you are not living by God's holy principles, you are living as a rebellion against the king. Begin a life of repenting and live in repentance before God. As I mentioned, this statement was John the Baptist's message as well. And it's not that Jesus didn't have his own message. But both preachers were proclaiming the truth that God is, his kingdom is everywhere. And the king is on the scene. And the kingdom of God is in force in as much as people are living under his authority and direction. And to live anywhere in this universe without obedience is to live in God's kingdom as a rebellion, as a rebel against Him. Repentance is the only response to living as a rebel within the boundaries of the king of the universe. And I wake up every morning as a rebel living within the boundaries of the king of the universe. And I praise God that in Christ I have access to the throne of grace. To find grace and help for my rebellious heart. And I live a day of repentance. That's a good day. Don't ask me about the bad ones. Both preachers, both both. John and Jesus. And I'm okay with people referring to me as a preacher because Jesus was a preacher. Both preachers were proclaiming the truth that the kingdom of God is everywhere and the king is on the scene. And Jesus' kingdom continued to be rolled out from John the Baptist's ministry into Jesus' ministry. And Jesus' ministry initiated the takeover of the kingdom of darkness back to God's kingdom. And its takeover is in progress to the final stage of God once again where God will be in control. And everything that takes place in your life and in history is going to come down to which one of those sides you end up on for all of eternity. Will you be in the kingdom of darkness that will experience darkness and separation and pain for all of eternity? Or will you be in the kingdom of light? Having repented and believed on Christ and live that life of repentance that he leads you to. That's what your eternity will be based on. Uh, many of us Many of you also have been excited to see revival, it appears, taking place on many college campuses, uh, beginning in Asbury and Wilmore, Kentucky, and spreading elsewhere. I remember when, when um, something of, of that nature happened at Wheaton and, and came to Moody where, where I was a student and and Jeff was student as well, and I remember us talking on a particular uh, ministry team, uh, asking the question, is this real revival? And the question was, we'll see. We'll see. 
because the question came down to, would it result in a life of repentance? Would it result in the, the answer to the call, be repenting, because you always live in the kingdom of God and live in the light of God's holiness? The evidence of revival is repentance on the part of God's people and turning from sin to submit to the king. What I was encouraged by to hear is that it does appear that, that young people are responding to God's call. And remember, we're going to look at this section of Matthew, in light of this summary statement, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and when Jesus called his disciples, that was the application that they needed to make of repenting. They needed to drop what they were doing and follow him. And, and so we're seeing some college students. Uh, Brian Sh Norris shared with me that, that college students have gone from Cedarville University and made the trip up to Ohio State University to share their faith on the streets of Ohio State. They've gone from Cedarville to Michigan State to share their faith on the streets there in the hopes maybe God is going to do something here too. That has been their response to the call, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Is God calling you to repent? I pray he is. We all should be blessed with the knowledge that God is holy. And I stand before him. If, if I weren't in Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior, you stand before him in Christ's righteousness. But that doesn't make him any less holy. That doesn't make your sin any more acceptable to him. That doesn't make your sin any less serious. Where is God calling you to repent? To live your life in light of the fact that every piece of ground you step on is the kingdom of God. And to sin, to live in sin, is to live in it as a rebel against him. This is the summary of Jesus' teachings. This is what he is getting Out to the people. If the Lord is moving in you, I just want to tell you, at, at the end of our service, um, the shepherds will be available. If you want to come up front and, and talk about your sin with somebody, yeah. Remember that's what the people that were coming to John the Baptist when he was saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, they came confessing their sins. If you're serious about it, the Lord is moving you in that way. The shepherds will be available. I ask the shepherds to come up here at the end of the service.
Let's be real about it. But here's the hope that we have. Take from our passage that the way that we can walk in the light of Christ the King by turning from sin to submit to the King and also looking to Jesus as the answer for sin's effects. This is the summary of the impact of Jesus' ministry over the next 12 chapters. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. As I mentioned, this is the summary statement of Jesus' public ministry. And it's helping us to understand the impact and the reach of the gospel, which means the good news that he was spreading. And the good news that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God had come. And the kingdom of God had come because the king had arrived. And this impact of Jesus was displayed in his removal of the effects of the curse that had been brought on by sin. There was no problem that came with the fall of man that Jesus was not able to remove. Disease, afflictions, pains, oppressions by demons. And these all came into the world with sin. And sin only leads to more pain, more disease. More demonic oppression. And we will see in the coming chapters how this is summarized here. And we'll read of his teachings. Some straightforward and painfully clear. Others in parables. We'll see his healings and others' exercises of the authority that he has as king. And we'll see how the crowds that followed Jesus around swelled and came from different regions. Many of them will be Gentiles. Some of them will be Jewish rulers who reject him. One of them named Matthew, an outcast because he collected taxes for Rome from his own people. We'll come and follow Jesus. And when we think of what it means to look to Jesus as the answer for sin's effect. It helps to trust that all of God's plan is moving toward a full expression of his kingdom authority. That's what we're told about in Revelation 21. You see, if you know Christ as your Savior, he might heal you in this present life, Or he's going to heal you in the life to come. He is going to lift. If you know Christ as your Savior. Eventually he is going to lift. Every ill effect. Of sin. From you. This is what we're told about. In Revelation 21. Verses 3 through 4. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. Behold the dwelling place. Of God. Is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like the original condition that we were created for. 
in the garden, walking with God personally. That's what God is heading back to. But what will be the effect? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God's final, eternal state of the universe for those that receive Christ as our Savior will be when we truly experience Jesus as the answer for all of sin's effects. Jesus might not heal you now. Jesus might not bring closure to your relationships now. But Jesus can bring you to repentance now. Jesus can allow for you to open the door to your heart. You know, when Revelation says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. That's actually written to the church. It's a call to repentance. As I mentioned, if God is moving in your heart, we the shepherds will make ourselves available. If you want to come forward uh, during the singing or at the end of the service or any time, please feel free. Or if you know who the shepherds are, Jeff, Brian, um, I don't think Brad's here, Ed. Yeah, I know Ed, but not, I don't think Brad's here this morning. But also, you know, any, any mature believer here, confess your sin. Come to repentance. Father God, our nation needs you. But our nation doesn't need more of our ideas, more of our plans, more of our distinctions, more of our divisions, more of our soapboxes and hobby horses. Our nation needs you. But Lord God, I, I thank you so much that even though you're the biggest thing in the universe, you don't just look at the world in terms of nations. You don't just look at things in terms of Where's the, the, where are the poles going in America? It's so amazing that you deal with us in the secret places of our hearts and minds. That each person that bends their knee to you 
is a victory that your angels rejoice. Lord God, I thank you that each one of us has your full attention. And I pray, Lord God, that you would be working on our hearts to bring us to a place where we walk with you as our king. And our lives reflect your rule, your dominion. They reflect your holiness. They reflect the high calling of what it means to follow you as our Savior and Lord. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.